We're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 12. And as we do so, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you've given us this place, this time, these friends, this church, and this hour in which we can study your word. Father, we pray to do so profitably. We pray to do so joyfully. We pray that it will bring glory to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at the opening verses of John chapter 12, and immediately when you hear the number 12 in the Gospel of John, you know that we are now going into the week in which Christ will be crucified and resurrected. And so that week looms before us. In all likelihood, the events of the day we are looking at here would be the Saturday prior to the week when everything's going to begin. So we're standing on the threshold of the passion and resurrection of Christ. Now, when you look at the four Gospels, it isn't accidental that so much of the Gospels themselves are taken up with this one week, the 33, roughly 33-year ministry of Jesus or or life of Jesus, and then a three-year public ministry. Uh, And when you look at the Gospel of John, almost half of the material is of the last week of Christ's earthly ministry. Similarly, about a third of the Gospel of, G- of Luke. And uh, this, this is just, just typical. When you, when you look, similar percentages of Matthew and Mark as well. When we were together last, we considered, or, or in the sequence of our study, we considered the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, most of us remember that account of the Gospels immediately because we are talking about this dramatic story of one who was raised from the dead. But just keep in mind, keep in mind the timing here in that everyone's focused on the fact that Jesus has raised this man from the dead. Lazarus, come out. Most haven't considered how close the proximity is to Jesus being in a grave and then rising from the grave. But let's look at the beginning of John chapter 12, and we'll see why this text is such a powerful text from the Gospel of John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's an amazing, shocking passage. It's actually a lot more amazing and a lot more shocking than 20th century Americans are likely to recognize. 
But when you reflect upon it just a little bit, it does become extremely shocking. Shocking virtually at every level. This is either the most appropriate act that Mary has undertaken or the least appropriate act. It's very difficult to imagine how those who observed it would have known, is this a horrifyingly inappropriate act or is it a beautifully appropriate act? It's unusual. Well, the text begins, though, in a sly way. It, 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 I, I love John. I mentioned John's irony over and over again. John's the master of irony. He is weaving all of this together. He has a theological agenda. He's helping us to see. And this becomes very clear even here in chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now, that, isn't that fantastic? He's come to Bethany. He wasn't far, but now he's in Bethany again where Lazarus was. Well, of course he was there because he's alive. But that's a radical statement. Guy was dead. Now he's alive. He just lives there. Jesus went to Bethany because Lazarus is there. And then there's the explanatory statement, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So there are a lot of Lazaruses, but there's only one Lazarus who was dead and is now alive. It's that Lazarus who's in Bethany with whom Jesus now is. So they gave a dinner for him there. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, we learned this was in Simon's house. It was a dinner given in honor of Jesus, apparently for the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was something of a celebration. Now, many of us have gone to celebration dinners, celebration of an anniversary, celebration of a birthday, celebration of a retirement. I have never gone to a dinner celebration in honor of one who was dead and now alive. But it's actually not in honor of Lazarus. It is in honor of Jesus that is the dinner. And that becomes very clear because it is, it is at Jesus' bosom, supping with him, that Lazarus is. So it's the greater and the lesser. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Well, of course Martha's serving, right? Because that's what Martha does. And it's very easy to dismiss Martha, but you also have to recognize no one's eating without Martha. And so the extravagance of what Mary does is rightly remembered throughout church history. But the, the stalwart service of Martha is sometimes depreciated. And as you know, in our earlier encounter between Mary and Martha, with a very similar kind of pattern where Martha is working and Mary is at the feet of Jesus, Martha is frustrated about that, wants Mary to work, and Jesus tells Martha that the one thing Mary is doing is the one thing more important than what she's doing. Now, don't think of that as two bickering sisters, one more faithful or more theological than the other. Think of it rather in a parallel of what you have in the, in the book of Acts, where we are told that there are many ways of serving, but you have the diaconate, which is created 
so that those who have the ministry of teaching will be free to teach. The apostles would be free to teach, not encumbered with table maintenance. But someone has to be. It's very dangerous in the Christian church for us to say, there are all these callings, but some of them are just a a lot better than others. This is one of the great insights of the Protestant Reformation and the Lutheran vocation concept, the understanding of a call, vocatio. And, and Luther was so adamant about this because the priestly and, or, or the monastic call or vocation was honored in Catholicism and other vocations were dishonored. And, and Luther famously said, you know, the milkmaid with her pail who loves Jesus is an infinitely greater servant following a greater calling than a priest who corrupts the scriptures or even just goes through the motions of, uh, of, of the Mass. What is that? Uh, so the kingdom of God is made up of milkmaids and preachers. And it's a holy calling in both cases. There is a special calling in the calling of the Word, but it's not a priestly calling. It's not a priestly status. It's not an office in this sense that uh, elevates one above others. It's a, it's a confluence of callings. Martha's working. She served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him, that means with Jesus, at the table. And remember, we're not talking about a table. Table is simply where the food is served, but it would have been on a mat on the floor. And that would have been the table. And uh, there are no table and chair arrangements. So instead, There are uh, probably pillows and cushions, and there's reclining on the floor, and uh, this is why, in a reclining state, someone will be close to someone's chest, that is, uh, reclining in the bosom of Abraham, in this case with Jesus. So here is a dinner given in the house of Simon, we know from Matthew, and the, the dinner is in honor of Jesus. The occasion was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But then something happens. Chapter 12, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Well, of course she did. That's what you expected, right? This is that act which is either beautifully appropriate or horrifyingly inappropriate. Which is it? How do we know? Just imagine the context. This is, a, this is a meal celebrating the fact that Lazarus was dead and now he's alive, honoring Jesus for he was the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. There is this feast, and so this kind of meal would have been very involved, and it would have been the kind of table occasion we all recognize There would have been fellowship and warm conversation, and Lazarus is there being served with Jesus, and then comes Mary, and she comes not with food, but with ointment, a pound of it. That is a considerable amount of spikenard. It's described as an ointment. We're told that it's pure nard. There's background knowledge to the Scripture we have to keep in mind always. Things that the Bible is not going to tell us, but things 
that are implicated in the text and then so obvious to the writer and to the reader that it need not be said. So, however, here we are in 21st century America, some things need to be said. Human beings stink. The human body operating normally and left to itself stinks. The longer it is left to itself, the more it stinks. The less opportunity there is for bathing, the more there is communal stinking. At some point, you don't notice it as much as you might have otherwise. You don't notice it as much outdoors as you do indoors. You also don't notice it as much as when you are reclining at table with one another. Then it becomes quite obvious, under some circumstances, might be an appetite inhibitor. What do you do with the human body that stinks? Well, we should be so incredibly thankful for modern hygienic opportunities. Even today in much of the world, this is considered an English-speaking world preoccupation, where you found the British Empire or you found American influence, you found showers. Americans and the English evidently do not like one another as much as do some other nations. Uh, We would prefer each other to be bathed regularly. We consider it an act of civilization when we finally discover that our 10-year-old son takes a shower without being instructed to do so. That all of a sudden is a sign of civilization. Something good is happening here. But in in many parts of the world, washing was actually considered to be, that is, the washing of the entire body was considered to be unhealthy. And uh, apparently, the Egyptians believed this. And uh, apparently, Napoleon believed this. Indeed, this is a part of French culture. The uh, exposing the body to, uh, to chills and to cold... Another thing we should be thankful for are water heaters. But in any event, if you were Napoleon, you didn't really want to take a bath. Instead, the French became famous for their perfumes. And so the perfumes became the, the way. You, you, you don't get rid of the smell, you cover up the smell. It takes a lot of smell to cover up a lot of other smells. The French developed, by the way, in the medieval, and then especially in the modern era, you know, this entire industry, a multi-billion dollar industry of perfumes and smells. In the ancient world, there were a couple of opportunities when there was a particular need for smells. One of them was positive, and the, the other was basically negative. The, the positive was when there was going to be an incredible special occasion such as a wedding. Wedding calls for good smells. Good smells are a part of the celebration. And one of the gifts often given to a bride was the gift of 
nard. Spike nard is actually uh, from the Himalayan region of India. It's mentioned twice in the Song of Solomon. We know exactly what it is. It's still used today. And uh, it was often given as a, a bridal gift, a very expensive bridal gift. It was generally presented in an alabaster box or jar because alabaster being itself a, a, a mineral is, is inert. So the, the nard would not disappear from within it. It, it wouldn't dissolve or the, the smell would not evaporate or dissipate. And so a bride given... The, the gift of nard might be able to keep that gift and the precious contents for years and decades in that alabaster container. Mary has one. We don't, we don't know a lot about Mary. We don't know how Mary came to have it, but she has a full pound of it, which is an enormous gift. This is, this is an extravagance that she owns. We didn't know that she had it, but, but she knew that she had it, and she's now brought it out with Jesus. The, the other occasion in which this particular ointment or nard would have been used was another moment when smell becomes a big issue, and that is at death. The anointing of the body at death. The death that is in the immediate foreground here is the death of Lazarus. Well, think about it for a moment. Lazarus does not need nard. He's alive. He's, he's reclining at table with Jesus. He's being served by Martha. So in one sense, when Mary shows up with a, with a, a box of nard, a pound of nard, the thought might well have been, He's alive. You don't need nard now. Sometimes very small portions of nard were used to welcome guests. That, that could serve a couple of purposes. Honoring someone and also perhaps livening up the room a bit. But this is after everyone's reclining at table. So this is not when people are arriving. This is, this is after that. So this means something else. What does it mean? Why would Mary show up with nard now? It doesn't make sense. What in the world is she going to do with it? Lazarus isn't dead. He's alive. And people aren't just coming into the house. They're already reclining at table. This is not a smell you bring to table. This is a disruption. It's, it's odd. But it gets odder. Because what the passage tells us is that Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. And anointed the feet of Jesus. What would it have meant? And just again, you're looking at, let's just, let's just say it's something like a pound of butter. Just, just imagine a pound of butter. That, that, that's not small. A pound's a lot. And, and we realize that the weight here is not exactly the same as our pound, but just think of it because it's going to be roughly equivalent in stature in our minds. So this is an awful lot of ointment. She's putting an incredible amount of ointment on the feet of Jesus. First of all, what are anointings? 
We read this word, it makes sense to us, but what exactly does it mean? She anointed the feet of Jesus. There are four anointings of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 7, and here in John 17. Luke 7 is a different account that was a woman caught in sin, similar kind of response, but, and, and also in a different part of the flow of the Gospel. The, the, the best text to read in parallel with John 12 is, is Matthew 26, as we shall see. Fills in a couple of, uh, couple of gaps and leaves us with something that, that John does not give us. Where does anointing come from? The best we know, Queen Elizabeth II now in her 90s and clearly in decline, so much so that in the last several days, the Prince of Wales has had to stand in for her at some public occasions. The, the queen's husband, Prince Philip, age 98, is now so infirm that he is at a small house at Shadringham from which it is expected he will not leave. We're watching a decline of a monarchy. Americans aren't sure what to do with the whole thing except watch it on television. But if you did see the crown and you remember the scene of, of the coronation of the queen, you'll, you'll recall that anointing that took place. The Archbishop of Canterbury went into what was created as something of a holy of holies. And taking oil, he anointed the breast of the queen. Where did that come from? The music in the background of coronations in the last 300 years, when that has taken place, the choir in Westminster Abbey is singing Handel's great anthem, Zadok the Priest. Now, your homework assignment is to listen to Zadok the priest by Handel, because in it, Zadok is anointing the king. And, and as, you, as you listen, you also realize what ceremony this is. And we are told by those who are close to the queen that in receiving that anointing, she felt that she was receiving from God a commission from which she cannot retire, that she would give her life as, a, as the servant, as monarch. Well, there are just very few people who are anointed today. A lot of people are appointed, but very few who are anointed. The point I want to make is, is that whatever happened to Elizabeth with the Archbishop of Canterbury was modeled on what happened when the priest of Israel anointed the kings of Israel. That's a long tradition. That anointing with oil or with an ointment like this is a setting apart. It is, it is considered a holy moment. It is a commissioning to an office, and both the priests and the, the kings were anointed. Mostly it was the priests who were anointing the king. That was the, that was the most 
that was the most customary, the most meaningful anointing is when the priest anoints the king. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what's happening here. This anointment of Jesus, Jesus who will be our great high priest and whose priestly sacrifice is just days away, is going to enter the city as a king. You don't know it, and there's actually no way Mary could have known it, but she was as if anointing Jesus to be entering Jerusalem as a king. A king to die. It was an extravagant act. We're told here by Judas, by the way, our financial expert, we're told that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. And remember, the denarius was considered to be a, a, a man's day wage. So this is 300 days of wages. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Why his feet? Why, why his feet? Why not his head? Well, the best we can understand is this was her own humility. She anointed the feet of Jesus. Of course, we'll be told in the Old Testament, it will be repeated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 10, blessed are the feet of those who carry the good news. But in any event, it's Jesus' feet that she anoints. That's a lot of ointment for Jesus' feet. It is so much that it would have been excessive. It wouldn't have all have been absorbed into his feet. It would, have been, it would have been radically excessive. There's a lot left over. So then she does something else which is shocking. She wipes his feet with her hair. Now, you should be shocked at this point. Very shocked. This is a very odd thing. This is an undeniably sensual act. I didn't say sexual. Sensual. It's all laden with biblical imagery. We actually sometimes in the Hebrew text don't know if feet even mean feet because there's an apparent tendency to Hebrew euphemism in which feet actually represent the reproductive organs. You, you see this when Zipporah throws the foreskin of her son at the feet of Moses. It's apparently not his feet, but the feet here are stand-in. It's a, it's a Hebrew euphemism. But in any event, the feet have been understood to be sensual. I didn't say sexual, but sensual. And so touching a man's feet, that, that, that's, that's a transgressive act. It's, it's odd. Doing it at table with ointment, that's otter. And then the woman taking her hair, her hair and wiping the feet, it is, it is wildly inappropriate, except in one situation. And that one situation is a dead body. 
So it just gets weirder if you're at the table. Mary appears to be extravagantly preparing Jesus to be buried. But Jesus is alive. They were there at this dinner because Lazarus is alive, and, and Jesus is the one who made him alive, and the people who were at the table must have been absolutely shocked about what was going on because this is wildly inappropriate. And you have to ask the question, how did Mary know to do this? Because it's clear Mary doesn't know. The disciples don't know. The, the synoptic gospels help us to see that even in the immediate days leading up to this brink of the week of, of the day of Passover, when Jesus was crucified, Jesus keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and they keep missing the point. He wasn't hiding it from them. They just didn't comprehend it or wouldn't comprehend it. And, and the story continues. So here you have the feet of Jesus being anointed with this nard by Mary, all of it, and, th and then she, she wipes his feet with her hair, and then notice this, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So that's what wiping it on her hair probably would have done. Uh, it, would have, it would have created a diffuser, so to speak, throughout the entire house so that the house would have been filled with a smell. But the smell is the smell of death. Or at least it implies it. Judas doesn't like it. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, notice the parenthesis, John's not going to let us think we don't know. He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Is, is that a good argument? It's not a stupid argument, is it? It's not a stupid argument. And, 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 and by the way, it, it's, it's, it's not a stupid argument. It turns out to be an evil argument, but evil and stupid aren't always the same. You know, you know uh, sometimes there's evil, sometimes there's stupid. The worst combination is stupid-evil. But in this case, it's, it's, it, it's not stupid because you could easily make the argument, this is a waste. Why, why, why would you make an argument that it's a waste? Because he's not dead. There was no need of this. We could have sold this ointment for you know, a man's year, basically, of wages, and we could have given it to the poor. Although Simon, excuse me, Judas Iscariot would not have given it to the poor. There's that good explanation for us to know. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But that's told to us by John. It wasn't apparent to those who were hearing that these events take place. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So evidently she hadn't used all of it. There was still some of it. And at this point, Jesus more or less tells her to save the rest of it for the anointing of his body for the day of his burial. 
you know, wouldn't you like to think you wouldn't have missed this? I would, I, I'll admit. I'd like to think that if I had been there, knowing that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, just, just even in the verses preceding, knowing that Jesus had spoken so often by the fact that he had come to die, I'd like to think I would have caught on to what was going on here. But of course, we are the beneficiaries of understanding the Paschal Lamb and understanding the sacrifice of Christ unto death. We're, we, we come to understand He is about to fulfill the entire sacrificial system to be for our sin once for all. We, we have all the sequence before us, trial, suffering, crucifixion, burial, resurrection. That's not all before those who are at the table. To some degree, it was before Mary, and Jesus knows that Mary understands something, and what she understands, He affirms. There's this argument about the poor. You have Judas who inserts this, and, and it makes sense too. You know, there are poor people. Why, would, why, why an expensive, extravagant act like this when we could have gone to the poor. Now, John tells us he wouldn't have anyway, but nonetheless, let's take the argument. And Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always, but you do not always have me. So is, 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 does this mean we don't care about the poor? We don't give for the sake of the poor? And that's not what it means. It, it does mean that the church's main mission is not poverty relief. That's not, that is not the main point. The left, theological left, has made much mischief of this, particularly in the past several decades with liberation theology and other developments. But there are those who aren't tempted by liberation theology who are tempted to just ignore the poor, which Jesus also does not allow. There are so many verses in the Bible, in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Jesus is declaring good news to the poor. The book of James will tell us that, that you know, serving the poor, helping the poor, assisting the poor is true religion. But there's something far more important even than that. And Jesus was speaking what we know to be the truth, the poor... We will have always with us, but you do not always have me. In his earthly ministry, the clock was ticking. Well, what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we do with Mary? George Beasley Murray was a famous New Testament scholar. He was the principal of Spurgeon's College in London and a very important British figure. In the, uh, the last uh, years of his life, he came to teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the late 70s and the early 80s. I had the opportunity to have him as a professor, the quintessential British professor, King's College man, a great New Testament scholar, far more conservative than most who were on the faculty at, at that time. He'd been very well known in British Baptist circles for his defense of uh, of the New Testament and of the key doctrines, including the virgin conception of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ. 
He was a fascinating figure because if you know the seminary, you know the two theater classrooms up on the second floor, Norton 208 and 209. This is in an age in which there was no air conditioning. So during the hot season, the, uh, the doors were open and all the windows were open, which meant you paid tuition for one class, but you got to hear two or three. And Dale Moody, I took George Beasley Murray for the Gospel of Matthew, and Dale Moody was teaching a theology class across the hall, and Beasley Murray and Dale Moody would, would often get into an argument hearing each other lecture. George Beasley Murray was the quintessential British man of reserve. Uh, Dale Moody was the bombastic Texan who had no reserve. So Beasley Murray would never charge over into Moody's classroom, but Moody sometimes did charge into Beasley Murray's classroom. I sat on the front row, and I could see Dale Moody crossing the thing. George, 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 read your New Testament. An indirect meaning, it, it, it was always, it, it, and Beasley Murray is almost always right. But nonetheless, it was, it was high theater during my seminary years, uh, 40 years ago, to have uh, this encounter but George Beasley Murray was known for his insights into the New Testament. And on this event, he says that the whole point is that Jesus will enter Jerusalem as a king, but the only king who ever entered anointed for death. And Jesus has arranged this. He won't enter Jerusalem just as a king. He enters Jerusalem as a king anointed for death. As we close, I want us to look to the Matthean parallel. Look to Matthew chapter 26. Begin in verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Uh, head or feet? Well, we're told very pointedly in the Gospel of John that she anointed his feet, but we're told here in Matthew that she poured on his head. It's not a conflict. That's just looking at, and by the way, in the kingly anointment, both of those would make sense. The indignation, here it's generalized rather than Judas Iscariot individually named. But notice verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Back in John chapter 12, her act is described by Jesus in verse 7 when, she says, when he says, leave her alone, 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And now in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus speaks similarly, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. It turns out, as I said in the beginning, this is either a horrifyingly inappropriate act or a beautifully appropriate act. And with human eyes, given our observation, we wouldn't know which one it was. And there's every indication we would have seen it as the latter rather than the former. Too extravagant, too out of place, too contradictory, too sensual, too personal, too public. It's, it's a mess. Except Jesus uses the adjective beautiful. This is a beautiful thing she has done for me. Because she's the one person, and we don't even know how much she understood. We don't, have, we don't, understood, we don't understand how she connected the dots or how many dots she connected. But we do know that God used her to anoint Jesus for burial at a dinner celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. The time is ticking. Jesus' ministry is coming to an end. The events of the next seven days will bring about our salvation and atonement from sin. Does she know all of this? We don't know, but she knew to do this, and Jesus said two things about it. She said, it's beautiful. He said, it's beautiful. It's beautiful that she has done this for me. But then that very strange verse 13 of Matthew chapter 26. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that incredibly sweet? We're talking about Mary doing this for Jesus. In December of the year of our Lord, 2019, nearly 2,000 years after Mary did this, we're talking about it right now. Not so much to bring praise to Mary, but to point to what's about to happen in the ministry of Jesus. She prepared him as for burial. He will enter the city as a king. And he will be for us eternally prophet and priest and king wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that these things were told this day in our midst. We're so thankful that you have given us the opportunity to open your word and be confronted with this spectacular event that leads into that week in which Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification.
Father, we remember these words and these events even in memory of Mary, but far more so in celebration of Christ, whom we do not merely remember, but because He ever liveth, whom we worship all our days. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.